0: Hello everyone. Welcome to the second episode of the Northern Plights podcast. I'm Keaton. I'm joined by Alex and Peter, and we're going to talk about the Northeast in the interwar period. So after the First World War, just to give you some background, so the Tyneside shipyards were some of the best in the world, and during the early 20th and late 19th century, they could construct battleships twice as fast as any American shipyard and five times as fast as any Japanese shipyard. In fact, the Japanese uh, bought, bought ships from Tyneside, Tyneside shipyards for their own navy. But the issue of these heavy industries, of course, is that they're very volatile and they're dependent on demand. So after the First World War, obviously Britain and the rest of the world doesn't, doesn't want another war. And so the demand for heavy equipment, for steel, for ships, for coal, goes down. And this sees... Massive rise in unemployment. It also sees the Northeast becoming a, a strong labor stronghold. And we see this um, demand for labor and for more trade union activity and general strikes. And so we'll go straight for it. So, to give you a general idea, I'm getting this from like Jan- Dan Jackson's book, The Northumbrians. after the war the Northumbrian coal miners became from the best paid miners in Great Britain to the worst paid miners. Um, It gives the number that in 1921 miners were given around 19 shillings per underground shift but then by 1926 it dropped down to nine shillings and six pence.
1: Yeah I'll add to that. Um, On a website called Our World in Data I found that um, Employment in the UK with coal, it was 1.2 million in 1920, so 1.2 million people. Then in Durham, it was actually, it peaked in 1923 with 170,000 people uh, employed by the coal mines. Um, And that was a fact by um, PJ Bowden, a historian on the period. Um, Yeah, and I think... Because there was such a, a a big employment rate with with industry, and it was so central to the northeast culture, I think that helped the area be more politicized and more involved with trade unions, yeah, with marches, with parades, wanting, and seeing how much of an effect they could have on politics. So they had the chance to make changes.
0: Yeah. Because during this time you've got uh, Ramsay Macdonald's Labour government, you've got a lot of Ramsay Macdonald's representing CM in County Durham, and there's a lot of other Northeast MPs who are getting into government, and they're dealing with uh, industrial unrest as well. You, talk, you talked about the uh, sort of the culture of industry, especially of County Durham. I thought if you could talk a bit more about the uh, Durham Miners' Gala.
1: Yeah, it's it, it's interesting actually. Um... It happens every year on the same date in the same place in Durham. Started in 1871, two years after the Durham Miners Association was, was created. And they basically set it up to celebrate and uh, meet with trade unions, have parades, orchestras to celebrate the history and to celebrate the culture of reform and the need for workers' reform in mm-hmm. industry. In 1929, especially, there was a an important uh, gala because it was uh, the recession had began in the industry. Things were on the, the downturn. Um, there was oh, well, how many was there? There was forty thousand unemployed miners at the time in Durham, the Durham coalfields alone, right on the door, trying to just survive. Um, but there was still a turnout of two hundred thousand people. Yeah. Um, and also, at the time, there was there was hopes that the the prime minister at the time, Ramsay MacDonald, would change because he promised three months three months before, and the general election he promised reforms. He promised changed changes. But then, obviously, a few months later, you have October and the nineteen twenty nine market crash. Which put another a nail in the coffin with all the troubles, and I think that mm-hmm. began a lot of turmoil and doubt that Ramsey could help them out at all.
2: Yeah, um, um, I've, got, I've got some more on um, the Durham worker mining industry. So the Durham workers had the the lowest wages for a pitman in the entire country, and by 1926, the rate had plummeted to nine shillings and sixpence, half of what they were being paid in 1921. And this was extremely bad in south southwest Durham, because in July 1932, 45.8% of the insured population were unemployed. And in uh, Martin Bohmer's book about mining and social change, he talks about how the uh, the northwest Durham was a bit was a bit better because they were they had the concept steel industry, which was kind of creating more unemployment. But in southwest Durham, especially, they had severe Unemployment, but it did slowly pick up, drawing throughout the 1930s. Yeah. Um, before we can, we'll continue with the sort of politics and the
0: economics of well, first the recession and then the 1929 depression. Alex, you've talked about how this how this is affecting families to base to the family structure and even to families' diets because of yeah. not getting a lot of revenue. Can you talk about that a bit?
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. In um, I looked at the history of Newcastle and Gateshead from the earliest times um, there's a quote in there where it says that families had to make do on white bread, margarine, jam, tea and potatoes with the occasional rash of bacon. So I think that kind of puts into co- context how how the unemployment and the economic depression was affecting the family social unit as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we should. Go on about how,
0: because because this is of course such a critical time in the northeast, and it's it's okay. affecting basic families' diets to employment. Mm-hmm. should we'll talk about um, nineteen twenty six and the, the the general strike. It's, it's that was the last general strike in Great Britain. So this is uh, um, again unions and the duration. Great, Britain. they're demanding increases in their wages. Obviously. The mine owners don't want to do that. They want to actually reduce their wages to make more profits. Of course, like you've seen before, Peter, this is during McDonald's government, and he's supposed to be promising reform. He's one of the first Labour. Always, this would be his second Labour ministry, and and but eventually, the government and the miners they can't they can't come to a compromise. They can't come to an agreement. So we have it leads to on the third of May, the first general strike. It first comes with. The miners, but then there's sympathy strikes all over the country. It only lasts around um, a week or so. But by the 4th of May, it says, says here there was between 1.5 to 1.7 million people who were going on strike. And in Newcastle, it, the radicalism sort of alienated the Labour Party members. And in Newcastle, the Flying Scotsman, which is a train that runs the, the East Coast from Edinburgh down to London, had been derailed by Northern. Uh, New Geordie trade unionists and radicals and that the British, the British government sent special auxiliary police forces to sort of clamp down. They even sent a battleship to the time as sort of a warning.
1: Yeah, I think it's important to note a few uh, general problems that the country had and Europe had, actually. Um, you have in 1925, Winston Churchill, who was Chancellor of Exchequer at, at the time, he rejoined the, the gold standard, mm-hmm. basically um, affecting coal exports because the, the British pound became too strong, um, and it was a right. currency in terms of a standard amount of gold. So obviously when the crash happened, um, it was proved to be such a bad idea, and well, because everyone was taking money out, but to look back on 1926, you've got coal exports that have already being damaged enough and now being even more damaged because yeah the troubles with the with the economy yeah and then
0: just to add that because we're we're talking about how this is affecting normal people it's affecting the culture i'm getting this from lancaster and calls geordie's the roots of regionalism where he talks about since there's so many obviously the north it's very masculine culture back then a lot of unemployed miners that newcastle became one of the biggest sort of fighting spots outside of london during this time so it it i'm it, trying to stress it affects uh, everything what's going on and um, anything to add to that
1: so yeah a, a village that i grew up in as well all my childhood there called witton mm-hmm. park it was a huge industrial hub in the 19th century and early 20th with a george pit and a jane pit which this is in County Durham. This is in County Durham, yeah. Right. Um, and it had an ironworks, which was started in 1847 by a company called uh, Balco and Vaughan,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which set up a, a booming village, rows upon rows of streets of houses,
2: mm.
1: until after the war, when people returned, when skilled, wait, when, when skilled miners were uh, obviously passed away from the war one of the pits closed. The last remaining one was closed in 1925. So a hub which relied so much on industry was totally demolished almost. It had 3,500 residents and by the 1930s uh, there was 97% unemployment rate within the village which is insane. Um, And by the 1970s Um, It it dealt with troubles of being put into a Category B uh, village from 1951, and then in the 1970s, the residents, uh, all that was left was 500 people, changed from 3,500, which is uh, insane. I think it's uh, sort of a reflection of the whole country as a whole, even though it's a small village, I think a lot of towns and big mine towns in the northeast were affected very similarly Mm-hmm. And left, left to rot in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah
0: and then uh, to add on to that that's comparing that during this time this is the supposed to be the roaring 20s to the rest of the UK especially London itself they this new sort of culture that's liberalizing culture and it's supposed to be sort of this great yeah. happy time yeah. while the Northeast is sort of rotting basically. Yeah and um, speaking of which uh, how about we talk about it wasn't just that the whole country sort of abandoned the Northeast. There were attempts, mostly by the Northumbrians themselves, of trying to alleviate the Depression. So, how about we talk about the, uh, the Northeast uh, northeast Coast exhibition in 1929?
2: Does so anyone want to mention that? Can I first mention a bit about the Gateshead industrial decline as well? Because I found that quite interesting when I was doing Oh, yeah, yeah. Go for it. So, um, in a book that I read called The History of Gateshead, so in the light, in late 1920s, Gateshead, especially the, chemis- the chemical industries, had moved away, and the remaining collieries closed. And Gateshead was affected really badly. And I wanted to talk about a specific figure, who I think is can be seen as quite like a unsung hero in the in these times. And right. name, let me just find it. His name is Peter Strong Hancock. Right. Right. He was a, he was a figure in um, in Gateshead during the time who we've got to remember because of this industrial decline. It also had an effect on sanitation and stuff like that, because obviously okay, yeah. poverty. So he he's um, known as the forgotten hero who helped Gateshead clean up his act, and he was credited with kind of like transforming um, tr- transforming like sanitaries. So. In Gateshead at the time there was 19,000 earth closets so he kind of changed like the whole toiletry system and he um, introduced water, water closets were now available in Gateshead and I think he's there's a lot of articles now of some of his relatives who think that he should be more widely kind of um, put up on a pedestal as a, as yeah. a and a lot of his um, a lot of his models have been now donated to like the time like the archives and stuff like that. And I read an article about how his I think it's his his uh, one of his relatives is trying to create more credibility for him, during, in the area, in this time. So yeah, I thought right. that's interesting. What was his name again? Sorry, so we can. Uh, Peter Strong Hancock. That's his name. Peter Strong Hancock. Yeah,
1: unsung hero. And Great. Yeah, the northeast's history is is often looked back on with pride, and I think in the nineteen in nineteen twenty nine, when there was a northeast coast exhibition,
2: mm-hmm.
1: born from May to October. Yeah, this shows how important and how uh, globally known it was the mm-hmm. mining industry of the northeast. Mm-hmm. Um. So from May to October. In 1929, there was an ex- exhibition in Newcastle, uh, what is now known as Exhibition Park. Yeah. The King opened it up, and it basically it, it tried to boost and restore some employment and trade, and bring people to see the um, extent to which the Northeast had uh, power in the industry. Yeah. I think. It was just before the Wall Street crash, and it, 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 it the recession was already taking its toll. Yeah, and I think, um, yeah, it was. It, it sort of. Uh, yeah, it was, it was to to celebrate what had gone on in the history, and I think it was an important part to celebrate because you have. In total, four million people visited mm-hmm. over the six months that it was on. Mm-hmm. In the first day there was seventy-one thousand people visiting, with thirty thousand people every single day, which is uh, phenomenal, really. Yeah. Uh, and, and then,
0: and then the, this is in this is in Newcastle. Yeah. And so, and mm-hmm. then what what's the purpose of this the exhibition? You talked about obviously it's a celebration of northeast culture, but also.
1: So you've got yeah. Um, there was, I think how much, 50, in today's money, it was about 15 million pounds spent on the, on the exhibition. And there was buildings set up to uh, showcase the arts, engineering, uh, design, culture, and uh, music as well. So you had people come from all across the globe to bask in the glory of the North which is yeah, cool. Yeah. And I think at a time when things were looking down, and the recession was hitting
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I think it was important to to look at.
2: Yeah I, I agree as well, I watched a, a documentary that kind of showed the pictures of it and it's quite, it's represented as something quite grand and it kind of shows all the different compartments of the northeast and all the different things that make it the northeast and um, it actually made a seven £7,000 profit and also I think a lot of like, um, I think, I think maybe the, the king of spain also um yeah out. so it was kind of like it's not just in the northeast. it's kind of like a worldwide event i thought yeah. it was quite interesting to try and like recover the economic struggle the northeast was facing at the time
0: yeah because this is also it's it's also of course this is trying to attract visitors and it made a profit over but it's also trying to like sort of attract businesses to say yeah. we've yeah. still got this we've still got this industry we've got this massive labor pool
2: Mm-hmm. sort of
0: invest in us sort of thing, right?
2: Yeah. yeah
0: sort of alleviate unemployment. And that's what um, they tried to do to, with the, when they built the t-
1: Tyne Bridge. Can we talk about that a bit as well? Yeah, there was a company in Middlesbrough which began as a steelworks but became a bridge building company. It designed and created the Tyne Bridge in 1928 and mm-hmm. then got the Sydney Harbour Bridge in Australia in 1932, which looks exactly like the time Bridge, right? People, people often think it's the uh, the Tyne Bridge um, sort of
2: inspired,
1: yeah. Inspired, yeah. The Sydney Harbour Bridge, but it was actually the other way around. And just because the time Bridge is a little bit smaller, so it was finished finished first. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also the company Dorman Long it made the first vertical lift bridge in England. In T side, it's called the T side Newport Bridge, um, and I think a little little town in in Middlesbrough, showcasing and its its industrial output across the world and the country is very important to look at.
2: Yeah, we know that it was opened by the king at the time, and it was kind of a short term employment project for people who had, so like shipbuilders who had skills. So, because they were out of work, they could get short-term employment by working on the bridge. Um, and then, obviously, we we know the story about um, Nathaniel Collins, who was a 33-year-old um, who was working on the bridge from South Shields, and he actually, um, unfortunately, he actually died during the um, during the construction of the bridge. And it's quite remarkable how, during that time, even today. Um, you see, you see people die during big, big construction projects. Only one, yeah. one person, one person uh, died tra- during the production of the bridge. Because,
0: mm-hmm. because there's no health and safety or anything like that. Yeah, so, I
2: didn't have any harnesses and stuff like mm-hmm. that.
0: Yeah. Um, before we forget, I think, Peter, do you have a bit more on Middlesbrough, just like on the unemployment or anything like that?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah there's cause for celebration with its international outputs, but at the same time in 1926, there was a 45% unemployment rate. So Mm -hmm. what was the real picture looking like at the time?
0: Yeah. So (laughs) before we forget, we talked about the the general strike in 1926, but also in 1936. So this is the depression. This is after 1929, uh, the the global depression. You've got the Jarrow Crusade. So, to give some context, Jarrow is located in South Tyneside and during this, obviously another industrial hub. But during this time, it was the sort of had the highest unemployment in the whole country. Um, I'm trying to see if I've got statistics about how much, but I don't think I do. No, okay. And then this is also again Ramsay MacDonald, Labour government, and he's. Again, he doesn't. During this time in Parliament, he's sort of power sharing with other parties as well. So he's not getting the reform in that he wants, and so there was hopes in the 30s that there'd be a, a, a government-funded steelworks in Jarrow to help uh, renew the town and to reduce unemployment, but that never happened. Mm-hmm. And so the people of Jarrow, and I'm getting this from uh julius skinner in the newcastle and tyneside Miss Ellen, and miscellany um, decide they've had enough because I, I think it's somewhere some tory mp says something along the lines that you've got to deal it with yourself just sort of fling, flings them away so 200 general men decide sod this we're going to do something about it and um, they go up and they decide to do a long march down to london to air their grievances about what's going on. And also during this time, Dan Jackson in the North Vietnamese talks about how june the 20s and 30s, it's actually seven marches, not from Jarrow, but like these long industrial marches. But of course, the Jarrow Crusade is the most famous one. Um, and the MP who represented them, she's called Red Ellen Wilkinson because she has like early on in her day, she had like a communist background, she's a socialist firebrand, right? But the the marches like gain the sympathy of the whole country across the political spectrum because they can they can sympathize with, with what's going on. So lots of people come out into the streets and applaud them. There's um medical students who's like bandaging their feet up if they're getting sores or whatever, they've cut their feet. Um eventually, however, they get to London and not nothing really happens, unfortunately. they the government sends a few coins down Jarrah's way and a, a few jobs are made but nothing really happens until the late 30s with rearmament of the second world war where Jarrah's unemployment decreases and mm-hmm. um, I think I think that's that and um, so should we move on with uh, again we've, we've mentioned culture a few times f- throughout the whole thing but you
2: both have and um, um, yeah go for it um so it's a it's a bit of a quote that describes how bad the situation actually was in jarrow during this time because of right. the whole like the shipyard industry so um in in a book called Tyneside by alistair moffat and george rosie it describes how this man called jb presley who was kind of going on trips around england to look at how look at different areas and how how they were how they were holding up during this time and he described um jarrow as a stranger from a distant civilization observing the conditions of the place and its people would have arrived at would have arrived at once at the conclusion that jarrow had deeply offended some celestial empire of the island and was now being punished so i thought that kind of really put in to perspective how badly how badly this demise of industry had on the on the whole outlook of of different places in the northeast i thought that was a very interesting quote Do you know what i'm saying
0: yeah that's great because from the perspective of northumbrians and people from gerald especially they have in a way been thrown away there's not a lot of uh, investment there are a lot of labor mps in the 1945 t- Government who talk about what happened to the northeast, and luckily by 1945, there's a lot of Northumbrian MPs who are sort of funding and investing and securing their jobs after the Second World War, but the First World War, that that doesn't seem to happen.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, Alex, you you've done quite a bit on sort of ethnic minorities as well. We're talking about cultures like the um, sort of the labour working class cultures and things like that, but yeah. there's also other groups and cultures which are quite interesting.
2: Yeah. So I. I've done a lot of research on um, Arab culture and Yemeni the Yemeni community who came to um settle in South Shields during this time and there's a lot of tension with these different groups so you had the 1930 Arab riots in South Shields which I feel like in the in the different papers at the time we've seen as this one of Britain's first race riots right. But well, if you look into it more deeply and I've and I've researched a lot and there's a lot of, there's now a lot of um there's a website called the the Yemeni project which is a very mm. interesting website where it's trying to preserve and kind of retell the history of the, the Yemeni community in South Shields during this time because it kind of feels like they kind of got like a bit of a bad reputation it's trying to like preserve all the different family links and how there's fourth generation, fifth generation of families still living in South Shields who have opened their own uh, cafes, restaurants, yeah. and stuff like that. So um, the conclusion is that the 1930 Arab riots between like the, the English. So basically, um, a lot of in the First World War, a lot the South Shields of its port was obviously used for transportation of goods and there was a lot of tension and competition between the Yemeni seamen and the English English seamen during the time and there was a lot of different different measures um brought out that would um that the the Yemeni seamen weren't very happy with and this caused tension but the main thing was again it's linked to the to the to the economic climate at the time it's to do with it's to do with them mm-hmm. having competition for jobs so it's not actually it's not really a race riot. It's again about the, the economic, as it says here, these riots were an overspill of racial amnesty between coexisting communities, but it was a product of economic de- depression and the desperation for employment. So it's kind of labeled as this race riot that was going on at similar times. And here, David, David Bryan says, the third, He wrote, I read his article, which is the 1930 Arab riot, a race riot that never was. And he describes how there was, a series of race riots that were going on during similar times at ports in Liverpool, Cardiff, Hall, and that the there was an organisation called the North Shields Unemployment Workers Movement, and many of this magazine was kind of creating the conflict between the seamen and the Arab seamen in North Shields, and that yeah it was it was actually an overspill of racial animosity, and this was this was even more debated when there was the in the 1930s there was the demolition of Holborn which sparked controversy with them being the the social segregation because there was a lot of debate in the papers about where they were gonna where they were gonna pot and house these people and even many many South Shield residents who were who, who lived there wanted to stand against the segregation and didn't want this separate living they wanted yeah. them to um, be mixed together and um, yeah a lot a lot of um, there's been a lot of coverage of this recently. For example, Peter Mortimer's wrote to Play" and book on book on the riots, which is which has been the play was shown around the UK. So I think it's a very very interesting topic of how there was a high level employment at the time, and he says the Arabs became scapegoated for this.
0: Just just to enforce your point on that, the the Yemeni community. Mm-hmm. Um, in South Shields is the oldest Muslim community in the UK. Yeah, the, the descendants of cause these sort of Arab um, men who served in the British Merchant Navy, and then with the connections with Empire, they've ended up establishing themselves and making homes South Shields.
2: Yeah. yeah, and a lot of them, a lot of them married, married Scottish people in South Shields, and then mm-hmm. created their own businesses. So. It's still very, very alive today. The oh yeah, the, the history, the history that was once there, it's still there today. So yeah, that's the that's the Arab community in Newcastle. One time, great, and
1: also got um, a lot of Irish migration, mm-hmm. over to the northeast, which is a big part of the the northeast identity now. It's integrated a lot, I think. I think mainly mainly because of its because it, You've got the Irish Self Determination League set up in 1919 in Great Britain
2: mm.
1: with a base. It was begun in London, but it had a base in Newcastle mm-hmm. with Ursell being one of the leaders from Newcastle. And you had leaders from Jarrow, he had South Shields. And yeah. I think they met, when was it? I think it was August 1920. They met oh. for a first time, first Irish gala in Durham since before the war. And I think. If you look at the turmoil that was happening over over the seas in Ireland with the partition in 1920 and 21 and all the troubles that was going on with that, I think you can see that and understand how the Irish fit in with the culture of Newcastle because of the the conflict that the Northeast people were experiencing as well. So I feel like both communities could relate a lot and you yeah. can understand each other. And I think that's why the majority of Irish migrants would go to Newcastle, not only because of its industrial power and strength, but because they were so alike.
0: Yeah, because there's um, a large percentage of those mine workers in County Durham are of an Irish background, and there's a lot of sympathy for Irish home rule. Um, in World War One, there's the Tyneside Irish Brigade. You have these PALS divisions who are using local communities, and a lot of Irishmen form their own regiments representing Tyneside fighting in the First World War yeah so and then of course the Irish in the north of England has like goes ancient roots right and um, yeah and then and then there's any other groups um,
1: um
2: so I did the, the the Jewish community I think it's very very interesting look at this time so Nigel Copsey explains that during the 1930s Especially Newcastle upon Tyne was a large increase in the amount of in the amount of people in the Jewish community. And in 1930, this population growth peaked at 3,500 individually individuals. And you've got to remember during this interwar period around England, there was quite quite a rise of I'd say there was quite a rise of anti anti-Semitism. And um, I did a lot of research into Newcastle and through the different through the different articles and books that I looked at I kind of came to the conclusion that in Newcastle especially there wasn't there wasn't many big pronounced outbreaks of anti-semitism so for example this quote from this quote from an article during the 1930s and 1940s when anti-semitism was at its most pronounced there was no serious outbreaks of anti-semitism this provided negligible so yeah and um, this was increased by there was different Jewish communities. So in Gateshead, for example, there was there was education there was education centres set up which attracted more more um, more people into the Jewish communities. And then Gateshead was became known as the Jewish university town of Europe. So right. Jewish people came from Germany so they could study. And also during this time. Um, there was a lot of there was a lot of um, movement and development with the, the the British Union of Fascists and they were trying to gain influence around England and I found it very interesting that in the in the mid 30s there was there was two key figures that were sent to Tyneside to try and kind of gain more influence and these were Tommy Tommy Moran and John Beckett and this oh, this obviously caused a lot of Anxiety and worry in the Jewish community, and they even had a meeting at Newcastle City Hall in May, 1930, May 1933. And then, obviously, in October 1933, you see the the Jew, then the Northeast and the Jewish ex-servicemen. They organised a major parade at Newcastle Eldon Square War Memorial. So I thought that was quite powerful, and there was around 270 Jewish ex-servicemen who were. From all communities in the northeast who came together to kind of celebrate this moment.
0: Yeah, that's mm-hmm. great. Um, I remember reading somewhere as well mm-hmm. um, that when the British Union of Fascists attempted to hold a rally a rally in uh, Newcastle in the early '30s.
2: Yeah.
0: obviously, the northeast, of course, it has its Jewish community, but it's also a labour town, and apparently. A lot of uh, counter-anti-protesters against mm. the BUF att- attempted to throw the black shirts over the Tyne Bridge. But obviously, yeah. they, were, they were stopped by the police in, in case they killed them. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: Just funny. Funny.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: All right. So next topic, very relevant today, is the outbreak of a pandemic in 19... 19- 18 to 19, 19. We, we, we know, 19. know about that at the moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so it's okay, just to point this out. It's more known as the Spanish flu, but our lecturer who made who set up this project for us, he's from Spain. And he, he's constantly telling me it's it's not the Spanish flu. It doesn't come <laughs> from Spain. <laughs>
2: yeah,
0: it's just that obviously this is this this outbreak comes during the last year of the war. Mm-hmm. and then so most of Europe's under press censorship except Spain which is neutral and so they're talking about the flu more and then it gets named the Spanish flu
2: yeah
0: but yeah. most historians I think believe that they it might have came from the Midwest of, of the Midwest of America and it's like so sort of went on carried by American troops to Europe mm-hmm. which is, just to get that out of the way um, So, to give you about what really happens with the influenza pandemic, it basically comes in three waves. And the first wave hits in spring of 1918, but it mostly hits the urban southeast of Great Britain. And And it really comes, this is by Niall Johnson, on his book about the influenza pandemic. Second wave, which is in November, hits the northeast really hard and the Northeast has like the highest death rate, one of the highest death rates during this time and infection rates. Um, this is because again, this is a, because of their unemployment, this is a poor town and people are living in slums and they're living close to each other.
2: Mm-hmm. And so the
0: contagion's jumping quite quickly between everyone. Um, and then the Chronicle talks about how in Newcastle alone, about 1037 people died in 1918 and yeah, across yeah. the UK it was 228,000.
2: I think that equates, I think that equated to something like 22% of the population of Newcastle at the time. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and then just to talk about sort of what, precaution, what precautions were taken and um, there was sanitation effort especially in the uh, poorer regions um, mm-hmm. about like cleaning toilets, washing hands, and things like that. Medical personnel on the streets wearing face masks, social distancing, handing out free soap, and um, again, free resources and education for poorer households.
2: Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Um, but, of course, this is during the end of the First World War, so people aren't really paying attention to the influenza pandemic, and it's sometimes known as the pandemic that's forgotten, or the forgotten pandemic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because People are more focused on end of the war and it wouldn't be the influenza pandemic wouldn't been recognized as a virus till 1930 and we wouldn't have um a vaccine till 1933 so this is like decades after um and and speaking now this is early december 2020 i've just heard that they're planning to roll out the first vaccine and this is this has been a year so that's quite interesting as well
1: i think it's also interesting to see the parallel well, the sort of like complete opposite really because the influenza it affected younger people from 20 to 45 so you've got mm-hmm. soldiers who were coming back from the war getting hit by the influenza and bringing it back over as well yeah but in comparison to now it's the complete opposite yeah Yeah. It's mm-hmm. interesting, interesting thought
0: yeah because it's a w trend or something like that <laughs> So it's, well, it's quite big with younger and then older people, but then there's a decent middle where it infects like sort of young adults, like you're saying.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And again, these are mostly soldiers.
2: Yeah. Also, I think it, with it being topical, obviously it is quite different, but obviously you already mentioned some of the sim- similarities with masks and stuff like that. And then I read in the Northern Echo, Owen Amos does a, does a piece on it and explains how schools had been shut so that's very similar that's very mm-hmm. similar to the start the start of our pandemic with the it's funny how even over a, over a hundred years now and some of the some of the method methodology is still the same shut schools yeah. uh face masks sanitation so it's mm-hmm. interesting how it's yeah. similar today.
1: it puts, puts it into perspective really we've yeah. we've got the, the pandemic to think about but they had so much death and so much uh pain economic downturn to think about as well as a pandemic yeah
0: it just, it
1: went over their heads because they were just so used to being uh in pain really
0: and a war, <laughs> war yeah. on top of yeah. that as well yeah. it's insane
1: yeah. and then
0: like you see with the relevance of parallel there's loads of uh especially like in historic journals as well this year a, a lot of it is all about these sort of pandemics the influenza pandemic but then the plague and what people did
2: so mm-hmm. hopefully
0: learn from history about what's going on with the current one in 2020 Um, i think also we'll wrap it up there thank you very much for everyone for watching this episode of the northern plights podcast thanks for alex and peter for joining us in the conversation
1: thank you very much
0: i'll see you